This is a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. Find us at k103.se. Due to copyright, the music is shortened. Hey everyone, and welcome to The Global Inn, a show where we get to dive into interesting topics on the international radar. I'm Solomon, and I can't wait for us to explore all these different topics and perhaps answer some of the questions we have on the events that affects us all. I hope that this program introduces and sparks ideas and perspectives that may broaden your knowledge on international affairs. I hope you love the show. Hey everyone, and welcome to The Global Inn, a show where we get to dive into interesting topics on the international radar. I'm Solomon, and I can't wait for us to explore all these different topics and perhaps answer some of the questions we have on the events that affects us all. I hope that this program introduces and sparks ideas and perspectives that may broaden your knowledge on international affairs. I hope you love the show. So, shall we introduce ourselves? Uh, yeah. Hello, everybody. My name is Marco. I'm 24 years old. I was born and raised in Helsingborg, which is a small city in the south part of Sweden. I'm uh, currently studying my second and final year at the master's program in European Studies. And together with Solomon, I'm also part of the board of the Society of International Affairs. Yep, yep. What about you, Solomon? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I'm Solomon. I'm 23. I uh, just started my master's in global studies. Um, my interest in, glo- in international affairs, i very interested in security and peace studies. I'm also interested in uh, development studies. I'm super excited to be doing this. How do you feel? Yeah, definitely me as well. I feel like uh, this year of 2020 has been like 10 years packed into one. You know, yeah. <laughs> so many things going on. Uh, it feels like almost every day you hear something new, uh, something happening, which is related, of course, to, to global affairs as well. And I feel mm-hmm. like it's a great point point in time to to hopefully shed some light on, on these questions and to discuss them in a forum like this. So yeah. I hope very that we much get to, to you know unpack a lot of these topics and discuss them. And I'm excited to be doing that with you. Um, why don't you introduce today's topic? Yeah. Uh, so today we're discussing a very, very fitting topic. Mm-hmm. I think uh, we're going to discuss the the fact that the UN celebrated its 75th anniversary today. It was just last week, um, and the UN has has basically been around from. It rose from the from the ashes of the Second World War, yeah. um, with the objective of saving succeeding generations uh, from the scourge of war, promoting human rights, uh, social progress, and simply a better life standard for for everyone. And um, throughout the years, there has been multiple uh, UN agencies mm. tasked with with just that. Yeah, and I mean, it's just it sounds very peachy and good, but and I know it's your dream to work there in the future. Mm-hmm. But Marco, what do you actually think about the UN? Well, um, I think that the UN for a lot of people is the the, the dream place <laughs> to work for, you know, uh, especially yeah. if you're interested in global development and international politics. And for me, it has always been the symbol of, of peace and international cooperation. And just the fact that countries all over the world sit down together and try to solve complex issues has always been very fascinating to me and how uh, they sort of try to, to put on put away their national and own interests to be able to uh, compromise on something together so to say and um, 
even though this has been the case, the UN has received a lot of critique throughout the years and have in some ways been struggling to carry out its, mm. its missions in practice. Yeah, and I also feel like many of the challenges that we face today, you know, they require international cooperation for efficient solutions. Yet we see that a lot of countries in the UN system lack the collective will you know, required to take on many of these challenges. Definitely. And I think that maybe one aspect of that has to do with the perception of what the UN can do or, or rather what it can't do uh, due to the fact that the UN often have been incapable of doing what is necessary and provide the help that's, that it maybe would have wanted to uh, because of, for example, the veto right in the Security Council. And I don't think we can really forget that the UN is just a collection of countries with national interest. I know you mentioned it earlier, but like the permanent members of the UN Security Council, that is Russia, the UK, China, France, and the US, they, you know, they've rarely agreed upon a resolution. I mean, vetoing re resolutions left and right that may negatively impact their own national interests. Exactly. And there have been numerous conflicts and, and horrifying events that UN haven't been able to intervene yeah. in mm. uh, because of the point that you just highlighted. Right. For me personally, since since I'm from the Balkans, the UN played an, an important role um, in the ongoing civil war in former Yugoslavia mm. as a peacekeeping mission both during and after the conflict. Mm. And in many ways, the UN failed to, to uphold what it was there to do as many civilians, unfortunately, lost their lives. And I think that this could be one example of, of a situation where people lost its trust in the UN as a force for good because it was simply hampered to do, to do anything. I mean, yeah. There are many multiple examples where the international community has failed to respond in times of crisis. But I feel it's also, it's equally important to point out that the UN has been an invaluable body for so many people in distress. I mean, just looking at the success of the WHO, which is a which is an agency of the UN uh, in their Ebola response in 2014, uh, also rallying countries on the ratification of multiple agreements, including environmental agreements like the COP21, right? And obviously providing food and refugee assistance, refuge assistance for tens of millions. Yeah, and, and in general, as a symbol of hope, I guess, and something good to, to strive for. I think at the end of the day, it's... It's like Dal Kamakhold said, the UN was not created in order to bring us to heaven, but in order to save us from hell, right? Mm. And doesn't it feel like we're getting to hell, to the hell part? I mean, 2020 aside, we have so many crises. I mean, there's an ongoing health crisis, humanitarian crisis, climate crisis, refugee crisis. <laughs> and all the while there are increased tensions in between global powers and an increased lack of faith in, in international uh, in international cooperation. Don't you get overwhelmed? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, uh, I, I definitely do. I think, like, it's almost like you just put any word you want in front and then just put crisis afterwards and then you could 
describe you know what is going on this is 2020 2020. yeah basically (laughs) anything could happen um but yeah but one thing that i also think that is hellier if you want to call it like that of 2020 has shown is that we as a as a society we we don't just automatically evolve with time i think Mm. um it's simply something that we have to continuously work on and put our thoughts and our actions into do yeah Um, because i don't think that the development of society and cooperation among us uh, as countries, as as people, uh, I don't think it happened by itself. Um, and yeah, I I think we have to commit to it, and hopefully the UN can be a central part of that going forward. Yeah, but uh, but I agree. It's like where do you even start? It's like yeah, where do you even start, and what aspect of it is the most pressing issue that we have to deal with now? These 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 are the kind of thoughts that could inspire a panic attack. <laughs> but you know, I don't know, man. Uh, we can all agree that the UN in its 75 years of existence, has struggled and at times failed to address issues pertaining to its mission. But at the same time, I think we can all agree that the world is a better place with it. But considering the crisis, struggling to act cannot be a choice. Um, I mean, we need the international community to cooperate. And I believe our guest today, Jarnot Scholte, will... uh, will help us you know, shed some light to some possible arrangement for future global cooperation, right? Mm, definitely. Uh, hi, Jan. Was that a good introduction for you? That was a great introduction. <laughs> hi. Uh, how about you tell, you introduce yourself? Um, sure. Uh, my name is Jan, Jan Scholte. Um, I'm older than uh, Marco and Solomon put together. Um, <laughs> And uh, feeling it at times, especially I'm not as old as the UN though, so that that may be a that may be a consolation. Um, <laughs> I was at the University of Gothenburg in the School of Global Studies uh, until recently. Yeah, I'm now based yep. at the University of Leiden in uh, the Netherlands, uh, coordinating a program on global transformations and governance challenges. So the UN, the United Nations, fits certainly fits into the governance challenges that face global transformations today. Mm. Yeah, the UN has been for a long time the face of global governance, right? Yeah. What do you Absolutely. what gra- what do, what grade do you give it? I mean okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it depends on whether I'm on a generous day or not. Um, no, I think, you, I think you, you you summarized the two of you summarized things very well. Um, the United Nations uh, was created 40, 75 years ago in 1945. Uh, at the close of the Second World War, uh, at the close of a, of a time of great, great misery, uh, in the hopes of building better things for the for the long term after the Second World War. Mm. And now we're 75 years later, and it's a good moment to think about what has uh, worked well and what hasn't. And I think you gave a, a nice balanced assessment, saying that in, uh, in some ways uh, the United Nations has made uh, significant contributions. Um, in other areas, it's fallen short. We can maybe talk about uh, how and why it has fallen short, um, and uh, yeah, and then look look forward. And also to look uh, at global governance more broadly than the United Nations itself, mm. since when the United Nations was created in 1945, as you mentioned earlier, it was global governance, and in many people's mind, uh, the United Nations still is synonymous yeah. with the whole of international cooperation today. And we might discuss about how that has actually gone further and where other kinds of uh, global cooperation are occurring uh, 
sometimes complementary to the United Nations and sometimes in competition with it. I feel like there is a lot, when we introduced this topic and when we discussed it, we realized that this year has been a hallmark, you know, shining light on a lot of the issues that we have around the world. And a lot of them still persist because there's been a disagreement, a lack of collective will in those institutions that we used to look up to for, uh, you know, global governance, uh, countries addressing issues together, but we don't see that anymore. And a lot of these issues, like environmental issues, they're very, you know, they're urgent. It's an emergency. We don't have the time to, you know, to deliberate on every single issue. And I feel like that has been a limitation in this global governance system that we have. What do you think? No, I think you're. I think you're right. The the, the United Nations, uh, which you could, in some ways, call the United States, but that would give some too much away. I don't mean United States as in. The, the, I don't mean the United States is in the U.S. of A. Okay. Um, but the United States as in, as in governments of the world. So the the United Nations doesn't bring if you like, well, it brings people together, peoples together in the form of their national governments. Mm. And that's both a, that's both a strength and a, and a weakness. It's a strength in that, you know, states as governing actors in the world today have m more resources and, uh, and, and tend to be regarded as the expected place of governing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so to, to, to have an organization that brings together almost all of the states of the world is an, an incredible accomplishment and holds enormous potentials. At the same time, as you mentioned, uh, states are constructed around territories, uh, border territories and national populations. So states tend to be geared in the first place towards their place in the world, their, their, their location, their territory. Mm -hmm. and yeah that inhabit that territory or maybe the people who hold the same nationality but are spread in other parts of the world but in any case a state a nation state is not oriented towards the globe and the global interest in the first place mm -hmm. um, it tends to come at global problems through the perspective of a particular place and a particular uh, people and particular interests that are associated with them so that can be getting in the way sometimes yeah. of, of a fuller cooperation. So the UN, in that sense, is both a promise and a limitation. Uh, it brings together the most powerful actors in ruling the world, states, um, but at the same time, those states are not always geared in the first place towards global cooperation. That tendency is especially pronounced today in 2020, yeah. because in recent years, states have often come under control of parties and individuals who are more inward looking, more nationalist, more protectionist. Mm. And one sees that from uh, Trump's USA to Johnson's Britain to yeah. mm. India's Modi to Putin's Russia to Duterte's Philippines to Bolsonaro's Brazil and so on and so forth. So in 2020 in particular, we see even more strains on global cooperation than perhaps we've done in most of the years of the UN's existence. Related to that, I think also that this uh, this image of the UN being restrained is something that also is is shared among the the general public. And what could the UN do to regain this trust? Yeah, no, you're 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 quite right that the United Nations public opinion surveys, 
Now, the evidence shows that in general, publics have decreased their confidence in the United Nations over recent decades. It was reasonably high, never universal, but reasonably high before. Um, but it has it has declined in recent times and, and looks quite low in, in, in many countries. It, it varies by country um, and parts of the world, uh, but in general, the confidence has gone down and, 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 and is less. The reasons for that, I mean, probably vary a lot between between countries. Mm. So it's difficult to say this is the magic answer to turn it all around. Um, but there are there are feelings that indeed the United Nations doesn't have um, enough resources to push things through. Yeah, um, yeah. there is cynicism around what you have said that you know dominant states are using the united nations for uh, their own interests and or blocking possible progress um so yeah for various reasons the confidence is not is not super high but considering a lot of the issues that we face that this year has shown us what are the correct venues should we still go to an institution like the un in hope that they, you know, might be able to address these issues, you know, efficiently, or are there other venues where we could find solutions? Yeah, I mean, there, 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 there are limitations that you just have to recognize with the United Nations. Um, you know, the full staff, the core staff, so not including peacekeeping troops and that sort of thing, but the core staff of the United Nations is smaller than the New York Fire Department, so. You know, if you think that the New York Fire Department has its hands full fighting the fires of New York City, imagine what the United Nations has its hands full with the same number of people, but then having to put out the fires all over the planet. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't, you can't expect that a really limited staff of, of this global organization is able by itself to have this enormous, enormous impact. Yeah. Likewise, yeah. the core budget of the United Nations, believe it or not, is not larger than the the budget of the city of Stockholm, <laughs> uh, and Stockholm is not exactly the biggest city in the world either. So again, the, the, there we're talking about the financial resources available to the United Nations, and then a number of governments across the world don't pay their dues even to the United Nations. So um, the resources available, the United Nations has has a lot of pulling power in other ways. Like you say, for many people, it's an inspiration. The United Nations is also um, you know, had far more impact than its material resources would suggest if you look at the power of ideas that it puts forward. Mm. A number of the key ideas that we think about in global politics today, like sustainable development or gender equity, uh, the, you know, democratic democracy promotion and the like, a lot of these kinds of ideas, human rights, um, have been hugely promoted by the United Nations over mm. its existence. So. Yeah, it has it has it has those impacts. But when you look at its material capabilities to make an impact, it's just you know there's not there's not much there. And there's another problem that you have to get so many governments of the world uh, to agree on things, mm -hmm. which can create very slow decision taking processes. Um, and as you say, once you move it into the Security Council, where you could actually mobilize and, and things going more quickly, then you're faced with the veto of the permanent powers. Mm. Uh, and then those permanent five can very easily block, as they often do. Um, so institutional problems, resource problems, 
put it all together uh, very difficult. And so, yes. This sounds very depressing, yeah. <laughs> but go on. <laughs> well, again, I, I think when you look at other areas like the promote the various promotion of ideas and so on and so forth, uh, and if you look at what has been done in you know conflicts uh, diminution and conflict transformation in a, num- in a number of settings, the world is not without war, but the world has also been without World War Three. So you know you can you, it's kind of way 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 it up in in, yeah. in different in different mm-hmm. respects. Um, and also in the area of development, for example, although the United Nations has very few resources of its own to, pro- to pro- promote development, uh, the United Nations has put development on the agenda since the 1960s in a big way um, and has promoted development goals, development decades, uh, uh, millennium development goals, now sustainable development goals. Now, And you might be cynical about that, okay, they're not fully realized and so on, but keeping people's aspirations on the development agenda for all of its uh, shortcomings and limitations um, surely is a, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a contribution relative to a world that is only looking for the, uh, the you know the economic growth within a particular country and 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 keeping keeping very narrow view uh, within individual countries uh, on on economic matters and and wider social development so these are again you can weigh it up there there are pluses and there are pluses and minuses mm, yeah I think it's very very interesting the thing you said about describing the resources that the UN has and then maybe what type of expectations people or the, we as a global society have on them. Um, so I was just wondering, do you think it's uh, one way of this could be to, would it be likely for countries to increase the contributions mm. to the UN yeah. and their resources? Or is this something that would not be supported by the general public maybe or understand what I mean. Yeah, well, you know, most, it's usually a struggle to get people to to transfer resources, uh, transfer their resources, um, which can also be taxes and the like, to, to, to institutions. It's hard enough for states to extract uh, more resources from their populations. Yeah. Um, uh, but if you move that to a global scale, if you were to, to to say, if the UN were to say, oh, you know, send us send us all the more, all the more resources in today's world, uh, a lot of governments and publics might not fully see that that is a reasonable or or, or constructive thing to do. Um, and in this way, there is there is a difficulty. You mentioned earlier on, you know, that the UN that its success was to be a symbol of hope. And as you said that, I thought, yeah, but it can also be a false hope, in the sense that it's it it's it's putting forward possibilities that it then doesn't actually realize. Mm. Um, and then, in a sense, the UN's hope uh, kind of keeps us hoping um, without actually getting things done, and without the United Nations have being you know reconstructed in various ways and getting much more resources, it probably can't deliver on on a lot of the promises and expectations that are that are put on it. Um, can we get those greater resources to the United Nations? It 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 it's, it does appear to be very difficult to do so. Um, 
in which case you have to think, and even if you did, even if you got more resources to the United Nations, I mean, who would be controlling it? You know, who would be watching over it? Suppose that you created all kinds of large, you know, global environmental agencies or or global tax authorities. Suppose that you got the United Nations to um, have a, a control over multinational corporations and try to redistribute some of their profits so that they benefit people all over the planet for various development ends. Suppose that you really tried to give the United Nations big resources and big powers to be able to do such things. Where would be the democratic oversight? You know, how would yeah. how would how would people be able to control such a larger global governance uh, through the United Nations? That would be a that would be a real question too. I mean, would you would you want a United Nations with all of those kinds of resources to be controlled just by the permanent five in the in the in the Security Council? Mm. Well. Well, that sounds problematic. But you know, considering what you just said about getting things done in such an international world, what is the where would you go? I mean, where is the proper venue? Is it on a regional level? Like, should we? I mean, I yep. guess we have more democratic oversight over institutions such as the EU uh, or you know ECOWAS or other places where. There might be regional institutions that are state-based. Yeah. yeah. No. No. That's a really that's a really good point, Solomon. They the from the 1970s onwards, especially, I would say, yeah. um, people have looked to the have looked to other venues, looked to other possibilities besides the United Nations to try and get things done as regards global challenges. Uh, On the one hand, yes, there's been a big turn to regionalism and regional institutions, not only in Europe, but in all parts of all parts of the planet. Um, There's been likewise a quite a considerable turn to uh, informal groupings of governments. Uh, So they they avoid the formal bureaucracy of the United Nations and its slow official procedures and instead go to informal collaborations like the group of seven or the group of 20, which was largely set up in the 1970s as a way to get quicker responses to uh, global economic and financial issues as well as others uh, when the United Nations system and its specialized agencies were so slow. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of collaborations these days take place informally between environment ministries, between education ministries, between human rights commissions and so on. And they just bypass the United Nations. They bypass the formal multilateral institutions and just get on with it through informal networks. So there's a lot of global governing that happens that way. And then there's a lot of global governing, especially in the last three decades or so that has expanded, uh, that avoids or keeps on the sideline national governments. So there's a lot of private global governance these days a lot of institutions and a lot of in arrangements that that you and listeners have probably you know never heard of um, in in the area of finance in the area of environment in the yeah. area of internet a lot of the global governing in those kinds of issue areas doesn't take place through not only not through the United Nations but not even through governments uh, but through private global governance I give you an example like the International Accounting Standards Board you've probably never heard of it no <laughs> what is what is that but the IASB, the IASB sets the main rules for accounting by 
global corporations. And you may kind of yawn and say, oh, accounting, that's boring. But accounting rules, of course, determines how you calculate profit and loss uh, mm -hmm. and how you distribute uh, you know, dividends to shareholders and, uh, and how you calculate the whole, the whole uh, uh, bottom lines of, co of corporations. Uh, what can be taxed? How much can it be taxed? How do you tax? How can you avoid taxes? What can you write off? And so on and so forth. These are big issues for big glo uh, global corporations. And when you ask, oh, how is it that big companies, uh, you know, Google, Starbucks, Amazon, whatever, uh, are not paying any tax in Sweden or very little, then the rules that allow them to do that are often coming from these international accounting standards arrangements, uh, privately run by global accounting firms, and they're making the rules. And they never touch the United Nations. Uh, they, you know, they probably don't even know where it is. I, I, I jest, but but uh, it's just to say there are important areas. Uh, the internet, likewise, a, a lot of the governance of the infrastructure of the internet. So the uh, domain name system or the allocation of internet addresses or the uh, protocols that allow you to send data across the internet. The rules for this kind of stuff are not done by the United Nations or by intergovernmental organizations of any kind. They're done by private bodies. Um, internet Corporation for Assign Names and Numbers, Internet Engineering Task Force, uh, World Wide Web Consortium. These are global governing arrangements that you've probably never heard of. But again, what happens is that the official, intergovernmental, under-resourced, slow, multilateral system with the UN at, at its heart just doesn't deliver. But people need things to be delivered for a more global world. So they start creating other ways of making rules. Um, and at times they'll just do it even beyond states in order to get things done. Do you think that this is just the way it has to be or is this something could this be addressed in, in how, how could this be addressed well I mean it, in in some ways in some ways these new forms of global governing um, have been very effective I mean uh, they can be technically often quite good look we've got we've moved from a hundred million people on the internet in 1998 to 4.7 billion, I think it is now. Mm. So we've moved from a hundred million to 4.7 billion in two decades. Um, and these private uh, global governing arrangements of the internet have largely made that possible. So in terms of technical effectiveness, some of these arrangements can be, you know, can get a lot done. Multinational corporations are have you know expanded and spread, and these accounting standards and arrangements, you know, enable them to to do that uh, very effectively indeed. Um, yeah. Corporate social responsibility schemes have spread, and so on and so forth. So these these arrangements can get the job done, and sometimes can get the job done faster and more fully than the intergovernmental agencies like the United Nations. But yeah, I was waiting but, for that. <laughs> but but you've you've got to ask, you know, uh, for whom do they get the, you know, in what ways do they do they get the job done, and for whom, you know, who benefits and who loses? Because politics is about is about distribution of resources and who gets voice and who gets who gets the results and how and and the transparency and you, also maybe. Transparency, yeah, like like you say, you haven't even heard of a lot of these things. So um, uh, when power is not visible, you have to be a bit worried. 
so yes there's there's transparency there's accountability as well you know if if these arrangements make mistakes if they cause harms for people how do you find out that they cause the harm how do you evaluate them how do you get them to pay for the damages that they do so you know there's there's real uh, accountability problems there's also fairness issues I mean, uh, uh, the International Accounting Standards Board is made up and paid for by big global accounting firms, and they are doing work for largely the big uh, global corporations, who then also mainly benefit from the rules that they make. Well, mm. there's a real fairness and justice issues there. Is are the is this IASB captured by special corporate interests? I think it's hard to say that that's not the case. Yeah. So. You know, uh, yes, absolutely. So, just being technically effective is not the—that's not the total good answer to global governing. I mean, the global system is pluralized, as you say nowadays, and maybe the future of efficient global cooperation lies in the hands of informal arrangements that are, you know, address specialized, you know, areas. Uh, maybe you I mean you've mentioned a lot about accountancy and the internet but could we see the similar similar arrangements for maybe let's say health environment and where we see crises uh, yeah, yeah, happening right yeah, now in the world no absolutely I mean you mentioned Solomon earlier on the the successes of the World Health Organization in relation to Ebola and uh, and the WHO has, has certainly made contributions in important areas uh, at various times. But if you look again at the WHO in relation to the current COVID pandemic, um, you can't exactly say that, you know, everyone is flocking to the WHO to solve the problem. Um, and for the most part, I mean, even in the middle of all of this, the US government has been withdrawing from the from the WHO, yeah. uh, whose resources in the first place are not are not are not terribly great something like four, four, on the low side of $4 billion US dollars per year. Well, that's not very much money, again, in relation to the size of, of, of global health problems. So the, the WHO has, has its limits. Next to that, you have been having other bodies like the Global Fund to uh, fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria, or the Global Vaccines Initiative, also transgovernmental collaborations amongst uh, centers of disease control. So the WHO is being supplemented, and in some cases even taken over a little bit, by these other kinds of forms of global governing. And um, maybe indeed it, there's an argument for saying, let's approach global health problems uh, from a number of angles and a number of institutions simultaneously. And sometimes those different organizations will collaborate with each other. Uh, sometimes they may compete with each other. It's not necessarily always a bad thing if they compete with each other or if they go each their own way. Yeah. You know, let them try out different solutions. Let them try out different ways of approaching a problem. And uh, maybe that can be, maybe and each different organizations can also speak to different audiences better. Uh, some may be able to work better with the pharmaceutical industry. Some may be able to work better with women's organizations in local communities and so on. Yeah. So it, it, maybe it's a good thing not to throw all your eggs into the WHO basket. Uh, and the same thing might be with, with environment. Um, climate. I mean, every every year we have these COPs, these conferences of the parties from the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Uh, you know, and everyone flocks once a year. Okay, not now because of COVID, but 
you know, everyone flocks to these uh, annual jamborees to talk about uh, uh, climate change and climate agreements through this United Nations framework. Mm-hmm. Um, again, when you throw all your eggs into the UNFCCC basket, is that is that good enough? Um, uh, and isn't it isn't it a good idea to, to be pursuing parallel, complementary, and sometimes competing regimes of uh, of other kinds through the G20, the Group of Twenty? through corporate social responsibility schemes, through civil society-led initiatives, um, for stewardship council and and various other things. Yeah, just make global governance bigger and more varied. Yeah. In relation to that, I was thinking that you mentioned that the US withdrawing, for example, from the WHO uh, and not having trust in in the UN's, um, UN's work, so to say. Do you think it's problematic that that philanthropist or people like Bill Gates, for example, has increased their contribution to these uh, organizations? And is, is could this be problematic that these people like, like him are taking a bigger role in the UN's work, so to say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are two, there are two ways of thinking. I mean, there are a number of problems, but two, two come to mind in particular. One is indeed that these such philanthropists, on the one hand, you say, oh, great, you know, they're stepping in, they're bringing the money uh, that states are, are failing to provide. Um, but at the same time, you know, they it's their money. Uh, so it comes with their ideas, their priorities, uh, yeah. their visions, their values attached. And nobody elected Bill Gates uh, or any of the other philanthropists that are, that are doing this. So on the one hand, you could say, okay, yeah, great that they provide this, but it's, it comes with strings attached. Um, you, you would much rather have public money uh, that, that comes through governmental or, uh, uh, channels or through taxation by the regional and global institutions themselves directly to publics. Um, and then there's a, there's a, then you respond, then the money is coming from the public and you respond to the public rather than to the philanthropist. Um, but at the moment, we don't have those arrangements in place. Um, you know, one possible way to do that would be to have global taxation regimes of various kinds, and then you know the 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 the, the super wealthy of the world would be compelled to pay global taxes rather than to have the choice to give out of the goodness of their heart. Um, so, I mean, it's a little bit how you want to look at this. Uh, yeah. Um, Yes, you know, the, these global philanthropists are, are, are providing resources, but they're providing far fewer resources than they would provide if they paid into, high, in, into tax regimes that extracted more uh, of, their, of their wealth. And the top 1% of the world's population at the moment is controlling 45.2% of the world's assets. That's according to calculations of Credit Suisse Bank. Uh, uh, their global wealth report. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're having 0.7% of the world's population controlling 45.2% of the assets. This is, this is crazy. Outrageous. Um, <laughs> if, and if then they, they, they give, you know, minuscule amounts of that 45.2% of global assets in an increased contribution to global health, you know, if, if we if we if we change the distribution of wealth, even in a smallish way, we could extract massive, massive new levels of resources to address mm. global problems and not be dependent on the goodwill of philanthropists. I think I mean, th- those are all. I don't know how that would be implemented if there if they, there's even a plan 
or a set plan that you know of how that could be implemented because that sounds very i don't know i've I've never heard about this before well well you have heard about it in on the national scale and you and you see it on the regional scale within the European Union, where there are dis- redistributions within the European Union between wealthier locations in the European Union and less wealthy locations in the European Union, and that's done through various European uh, European level schemes. On an international level, though. Yeah, yeah, but look also, Solomon. Consider, imagine that you were living in Sweden a hundred years ago, and uh, rather than today. If a hundred years ago in the 1920s you had and you looked at the distribution of wealth in yeah. Sweden at that time, you know there were masses, there were masses and masses of poor people, and there were small concentrations of, of highly wealthy people. And from that situation in the 1920s, Sweden evolved over the next decades into a highly redistributive welfare state. Uh, in which, yes, there are still inequalities and there are still some super rich, but there are not on the whole, certainly in, in historical perspective and in comparison with many other parts of the world, you wouldn't say that there, that there are huge uh, poverty or inequality in, in Sweden. You can yeah. still argue that it's not good enough and so on and so forth, but it was possible to get from the Sweden of 1920 to the Sweden of 2020. And if you had said to people 100 and 120 years ago that you could create a national redistributive social democratic state, they would have said you're crazy. How can you imagine anything like that? So when you today say, I can't imagine, you know, global redistribution, I can't imagine having a kind of global scale welfare arrangements. Well, maybe you are on a global scale, in the same position that other people were 120 years ago on a national scale. Things can change. Interesting. Things can change. And it, and, it, and if anything, things change in today's world faster than they did 100 years ago. So with the right political moment and the right mobilization, uh, I think we could surprise ourselves. When you say it, uh, I'll have to accept it. Hmm. As After all, you, you, you said that you've had... Uh, You've lived both of our lifetimes, me and Marco. <laughs> yeah. So you know what you're talking about. Uh, well, yes, or I'm just extra sad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had one question uh, question regarding efficiency. It's not always beneficial when it's unaccounted for. You can't you can't find accountability. But you know, considering a lot of the issues that, again, talking about the challenges that we face today, how do we juggle efficiency and democracy? Yeah, I mean, I think the the I would say it's actually probably more complex, even that than that. On the one hand, there are questions of uh, of uh, uh, effective effectiveness, so efficiency, expertise, using the best knowledge available, um, and so on. And that's kind of the the effectiveness dimension of good global governing, as well as good national governing, for that matter. Next to that, you have democratic concerns, and then you're wondering about, okay, is there enough participation? Is there enough consultation? Is there enough uh, uh, control by affected publics over those who, who govern them? And so on. So you've got the, 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 dim- the, the democracy dimension. Um, in addition, though, I would say you've also got a fairness dimension. Um, and that means, you know, are, are, is everyone treated the same? 
with impartiality, mm-hmm. that rules are applied to, to everyone in the same way, non-discrimination, that there is uh, also a fair distribution of resources, uh, that people share both the gains and the burdens of, of, of global problems in a fair way. Uh, this is another problem alongside democracy and efficiency. And in today's world, I think you also need to ask questions about ecological integrity and you know the interests of the wider web of life and not just about human interests. Uh, and global governing. So when we talk about democracy and fairness and efficiency, it's all about us as the human species, you know, efficiency for us as the human species. Democracy is about people's power, not, you know, the power of forests and the power of animals. Um, And fairness, then when we're talking about fairness, we're usually talking about fairness amongst people. Uh, But there's also fairness for the planet as a life system. Um, So I think we need to bring in those ecological dimensions as well. Sorry, I'm just complicating things even more. (laughs) But but I mean, often people present, you know, oh, there's a trade-off between efficiency and democracy. And and first of all, I'd say they're not always opposed to each other. Sometimes they can help each other. So, you know, if you listen to more people, then you might actually hear more answers, which can be more efficient and more effective in answering a problem. So democracy can improve efficiency. It's not always in the way of efficiency. Mm-hmm. So that, 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 that's, one, that's one thing. So efficiency, democracy, it's a more c- complicated relationship. And again, to make it even more complicated, add some other dimensions beyond efficiency and democracy. In relation to that, do you think that people around the world or governments or people in general, um, is the image of what fairness is could that differ too much depending on who you ask and where in who like where in the world those people live no absolutely absolutely i mean there's a there's a huge problem in coming together in global governance through enormous cultural diversities and, and differences yeah so you know, people across the world can have very different ideas about what is fairness mm-hmm. you know um so you know Fairness can be related to uh, you know, gender relations, for example. Well, we know that gender relations are regarded hugely differently in different in different uh, settings across the world. So, trying to get everyone together with an agreement on what gender equity means, you know, across the world is 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 quite something. Yeah. Um, or likewise, if you know people's ideas about nature and and environment and ecology and are are hugely different depending on you know where you are in society. Um, and so trying to get everyone to agree on, you know, what is the good way to treat the environment is very, very hard. Or even democracy. You know, we, we might think, sitting in Western Europe and in Sweden, that democracy is obvious. You know, democracy is about having multiple parties that compete in, a, in periodic elections to, uh, you know, the national legislatures and the like. Uh, democracy is about uh, civil rights, uh, freedom of expression, freedom of... Yeah, but that's one way of doing democracy. There are, you know, other, other perspectives on democracy also exist. So trying to get everybody to agree across the world on what is democracy, even efficiency. Well, efficiency in relation to what, you know? Some people may say, "Oh, efficiency is uh, is uh, is is how is how how much economic growth you can get." But another one might be economic efficiency is you know how you can uh, increase the the membership of the church the fastest. I mean, or, or whatever you know. Yeah. So it's it, it's tough. It's tough, and and you have to think about how do you 
you know, it's already difficult enough to put a government together or to, to rule, a, rule a country with all of the diversities that you find within a country. Then think about the global scale and all the even larger diversities that you've got, you, that you've got there. But considering the point that you, you raise on fairness, how will you, you know, I mean, how could you imagine addressing the topics that we talked about earlier when the definition of fairness is different around the world? How do you rally a consensus on a global scale on a topic unless you are already in trouble? How do you rally the world considering our varied definition on fairness? Yeah, well... Was that a tough one? No, it, uh, ab absolutely it's a tough one. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, 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 prob the problems start on agreeing that on the nature of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, across different countries and continents, so g across geographical places, people have very different views. Uh, people also have very different views depending on where in society they are. Yeah, are they older people or younger people? Are they female or male? Are they uh, of color? Are they white? Are they you know they're um, are they heterosexual? Are they are they uh, of all, uh, sexual diversities? I mean, are they religious? Are they not? If they're religious, which religion? So within society, you have huge diverse views, and then across the world, you have different huge uh, huge views, and then sometimes even you know the languages that people speak. The languages that people speak will also make their minds work in different ways. So there are getting people across a global world to agree what are the global problems and what are their relative priorities is already a huge problem. We might say, oh, it should be obvious that there's a climate crisis. But again, we see that not everybody agrees. Not everybody sees it. Mm, yeah. Um, uh, not everybody sees that that there are, are unacceptable global inequalities. Some people are attuned to this. Other people say, well, you know, inequalities between countries and so on, it's none of anybody's business. So, again, uh, health crisis at the moment with the, with, 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 with the COVID, uh, how much have people been able to agree on what exactly is the crisis and how you should deal with it across the planet? up to a point but even there we've got huge disagreements yeah so it's uh it, it's already a problem just agreeing what the problems are and then if you get to the point of agreeing what the problems are then you get into even bigger difficulties of deciding you know how you how you address those problems um but it, but it has to be done it does have to be done because uh, unless you're unless you're uh, you know a total constructivist who says everything is in our imagination, um, we do have a climate crisis, um, and we are going to go to big, big, big demographic changes in the world over the decades to come. Yeah. You know, certain parts of the world are going to get a lot older, and other parts of the world are going to get a lot younger, and there's going to have to be major migration flows. Uh, to even all of that out. Uh, so whether you like it or not, you know, global migration issues are here to stay. Um, so, yeah, we, we're going to have to figure out how to deal with it somehow. Yeah, somehow, Some, someplace, someday. Some way. <laughs> um, to round up, I think the world is more pluralized and we've talked about some 
uh, crazy ideas that I think is pretty crazy right now, but maybe not in the future. Who knows? You know, tax arrangements on a global scale. Mm. We've also discussed the topic on fairness. Mm. And I think that is going to be a part where we all have to have a discussion on what is fairness and whether we do that between ourselves and or with our national governments or other venues, I think that will be up to us. The future of global cooperation is difficult. It's uh, complex. It's depressing in some respects. <laughs> it's uh, no, but it's yeah, it, but it's, it's, yeah. it's it's prom it's promising in others. Um, I think it's especially promising when you think about how much change there has been uh, over history uh, and how major shifts have often taken place in short amounts of time. Mm -hmm. That, for example, a hundred years ago, people did not, in general, imagine decolonization. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. they were living in a world of colonial empires and they assumed that colonial empires were the way things were. Mm -hmm. uh, and relatively rapidly, the world changed uh, into a world of uh, sovereign nation states across the planet. Uh, people a hundred and more years ago, as discussed before, didn't imagine the welfare state and all of the possibilities of pensions and social security systems and the like that many states across the planet now provide. Um, people did not imagine an internet uh, 30 or 40 years ago, uh, except in some crazy science fiction that they imagined might happen well beyond their lifetimes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the numbers of possibilities that have come up historically and the, and the rapidity with which change can take place should make us optimistic, Do you feel optimistic about the possibilities that, that, that can happen. Um, so I would say that. And I would also say, you know, a lot of the possibilities of change start with making people have an imagination, mm -hmm. um, have a, a, you know, awakening in people the, the possibility to think about things differently. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen that in various social movements mm -hmm. um, over time. You know, if you didn't have the various women's movements, you wouldn't have the transformed uh, gender relations that we seek to develop. If you didn't have environmental and ecological movements, you wouldn't have the various attempts to rethink uh, ecology and climate and so on that, that we see around us today. Yeah. Um, so thinking differently and in a way, in, in its own small way, your radio program is doing that too. It's part of a re-education. It's part of rethinking. Um, and eventually, maybe, you know, you can imagine rethinking things at school and the way that kids are, are, are brought into school when they're five and six years old to have more global consciousness, more global orientation, to regard global governance as a normal major part of the way the world is ruled, um, to think about global redistribution as, uh, as being as normal as redistribution within a country. Yeah, um, yeah we can, it, 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 can it, it can get there. But it does require, uh, yeah, a lot of sustained effort from a lot, a lot of people. Um, plus, in the end, a bit of luck. 
in history <laughs> trips one way or another. I mean, we need that. I always need a little bit of luck. Always need. Yeah, yeah. But we need, we need better luck than we've had this year with this pandemic. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, great way to start the a decade. You know. <laughs> it can only go upwards. Hopefully, it can only go upwards now. I mean, hopefully, <laughs> things can only get better. Yeah, that's right. Well, that's great. Yeah. But thank you for joining us, Jan. I yeah. mean, this was a okay. really great opportunity to get to talk about these issues with you. Yeah, definitely. No, no. enjoying. Yeah, good. Good to talk with you, uh, uh, Solomon, Marco. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, for all who are listening, uh, thank you for being part of this journey. It's uh, the first episode for us, right? Yeah. And we have been very nervous. I hope that you guys will get to listen to this show. And uh, no, I hope that you guys will love the show mm -hmm. and uh, leave comments on our Facebook page uh, where you will get information on what topics we plan to address. And hopefully you can send some questions, th stuff that you would like to know. If you guys are interested in international affairs and uh, if you would want to become a member of the organization, you could find all that information on our website or on our social media. And guess what? Membership is for free. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it? Isn't that great? It's perfect. <laughs> all right. See you next time. Thank you for having us today. You've just heard a podcast version of a radio show by K103 Gothenburg Student Radio. You'll find all our shows at k103.se. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Stay tuned.